Take your Bible, please, and let's dive in. Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. Uh, Melinda was telling me earlier this week, I'm encouraged by this, and I want to encourage you with this news. Melinda was telling me that, that uh, she is um, having to replace and replenish, refill the seatbacks, uh, quite a few of them, because the sermon notes are being, uh, uh, those sermon pages are being used. And so that's encouraging for me to, to hear that, um, that, uh, that, that we're engaged in what God wants to say uh, to us through his word. And then she's also shared that the Bibles, apparently she has a very particular way that she uh, places those Bibles. And so she can tell when they've been moved. And, uh, and they've been moved, and that's a good thing. We want our Bibles moved, right? We want to move those things. And so, uh, so I am just, when, when she told me this uh, news this week, it just reminded me of the Bereans. You remember the Bereans who are just, um, they, they, they loved to, to read and learn the Word of God and, uh, and not just take the, the speaker's word for it. You know, they, they loved to... Um, to like dig in the word themselves. And, and so you guys have encouraged me in that way because uh, it's, it's very Berean-like what you're doing. So Acts chapter 15, we come to Acts 15 to, uh, to notice an immediate contrast with Acts 14. Acts 14 ends uh, with the return of Paul and Barnabas to the church uh, in the city of Antioch, and, and that church had commissioned and, and sent them out as missionaries. And for about a year and a half, they took the gospel to new places. Uh, thousands of people across Cyprus and Pamphylia and the province of Galatia heard the message of Christ, and hundreds, if not thousands, came to saving faith in Jesus. Lives were changed, churches were planted, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, we're told, at the end of chapter 14, and, uh, and the entire church rejoiced together. But chapter 15 begins, not with rejoicing, but with trouble. Trouble that wasn't coming from the outside world as we've seen earlier in Acts, but rather trouble that was coming from within the church itself. Conflict was brewing. Now, you know this. Certain conflicts just aren't that big of deal. Certain issues just aren't worth fighting over. they They just simply aren't worth the time or energy or potential loss of relationship. They're just not worth it you just we just have to learn to just let things go right we just not everything is a big deal and we just have to learn to discern the big from the small and we just need to let some stuff go but this wasn't one of those issues this was an issue worthy of an all hands on deck approach some have even suggested, some have even suggested that what, what took place here in Acts 15, 1 through 35, is the most make or break decision in all of church history. That the threat here, the threat here is legalism, and the church's handling of it is exemplary. And they basically come to this conclusion. Because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, let's not burden ourselves or others with our legalistic millstones. And so we have lots to cover this morning, and I'm excited to get started. I think you will be informed, I think you will be encouraged. I think you will be challenged. I think you may be convicted at times, as I was. But in the end, I believe we will be deeply grateful to God 
and inspired by those in the church who've gone before us. Acts chapter 15, I'll read it. You can read along with me. Acts chapter 15, I want to take the, the, the episode in one account in, at one time, verses 1 through 35. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will all be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And, and, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it's written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and, and will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every day, every city, those who proclaim him for his read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions to do so. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the, the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. If, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> Toodaloo. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they'd read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. 
But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Amen. Father, we want to thank you for our time today in your word. We want to thank you for the, um, for the example we have set before us, that we are just so very privileged to, to be able to learn from those who've, who've uh, lived this Christian life before us, uh, to learn from their example, to learn from their mistakes and from the things that they did right. And we're thankful that, it's, that, that you, Lord, you are the same, you the same God, the, the same Lord Jesus, the same Holy Spirit who, who was with them, you are with us today. And so uh, we're facing many of the same issues they faced and other churches have faced throughout church history. And so in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. And so what we want for today, what, what my prayer is for today is that this these next 30 or so minutes would not be just uh, an exercise in, in more information and in gathering more information, but that this would be uh, truly transformative. That you would transform us on an individual level, each one of us individually, and, and then collectively, God, that you would transform the the heart and mindset of, of our congregation. Lord, I thank you for the rich history and for the gift of tradition. And I pray that you'd speak to us afresh even now for the good of your church and for the great glory of your name. Amen. So the chapter begins with, um, with men from Judea, these are Jewish Christians, arriving in the city of Antioch with an apparent axe to grind. They proceed to inform the Gentile Christians that their salvation experience was in fact no salvation at all. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Ever met people who just want to stir the pot? They're just always critical of what someone else is doing. They have no agenda other than pushing their agenda. They're always looking over someone's shoulder, inspecting what is or isn't being done, always ready to pounce. And it seems, doesn't it? It seems they always show up when good things are happening. As was the case in the church at Antioch, it's as if they just can't handle the possibility that God is actually working in ways that may not align with their way of doing things. A few years ago, I began receiving anonymous mail from a supposedly Christian organization that went to great lengths to call out and tear down other Christian churches and ministries. Uh, I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure how this organization got my home address, though I have suspicions. Uh, but amazingly, the mailings always coincided with whatever we happened to be discussing as a congregation at that time. And this organization made it very clear that anyone who doesn't see things how they see them is fair game. They are self-appointed watchdogs, relentless in being in everyone else's business, as if God had specifically appointed and commissioned them to keep his church in line. Because I've received plenty of these mailings over the past handful of years, I now, 
I can spot them a mile away and I don't even open them anymore. I pay them no attention. They go straight into the trash with the rest of the junk mail. Now, we don't know the motive of these men from Judea. We don't, we don't know their motive, whether they intended to cause strife in the church, but I do think it's telling that they went on their own accord. They, they left Jerusalem on their own accord. There was, no, there was no sense of the church in Jerusalem sending them. They left Jerusalem on their own accord without consulting anyone, including the apostles and elders, as we read in verse 24. And what becomes clear is that is their insistence on on ritualistic law keeping, particularly the Jewish observance of circumcision, which cuts right. It cuts to the very core of the Christian gospel at stake was the assurance of salvation. Is a person saved by the good news, by the power, the good news of the gospel or by good works plus the gospel. You can see there's a world of difference. And so as the chapter unfolds, I want to take it in four parts. First, the threat of legalism, then the grace of God, then the, uh, the decision of the apostles and elders, and finally, the response of the church. The threat of legalism. Could a Gentile become a Christian without first observing Jewish law, specifically circumcision? That was the question. Could a Gentile become a Christian without first observing Jewish law? And it posed a serious threat. Because before the time of Christ, circumcision was what denoted the people of God. It was a way of being set apart from the surrounding culture. And the Jews were, were just very meticulous, fastidious in, in keeping this as law. But with the arrival of Christ, things changed. It's a key word. Things changed. No longer were God's people characterized by circumcision, but by their allegiance to Jesus. So the issue here is... Would the church, specifically this church that was predominantly Jewish at the time, would the church adapt? Would Jewish Christians let go of their reliance upon tradition to instead rely wholeheartedly on the grace of God? And would they allow uh, non-Jews to benefit from the same grace. This was such a, a, a monumental, this was such, of such monumental importance that Paul and Barnabas, both of them Jews, uh, had no small dissension and debate with them, we're told. Uh, let me say that another way. They had a big debate. No small debate means a big debate. This was a big issue. And Paul and Barnabas, knowing what was at stake, took immediate action. And they were unyielding in their opposition to anything that detracted from the gospel of grace. They were not going to sit idly by while legalism permeated the church. So it was decided that they should go to the flagship church in Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the apostles and the elders there. Along the way, I love this, they told everyone they met in Phoenicia and Samaria all that God had done in bringing salvation to the Gentiles, and everyone celebrated this. And so, you know, you get this picture. Everybody's celebrating this except a small few, a relatively small percentage It was this relatively small percentage that's causing this disruption for everyone. And unfortunately, that's how it often happens. Often a small faction can divide entire congregations. In this case, it was the Pharisees. Verse 5 says, some Pharisees came to believe in Christ. That's such great news, isn't it? 
But being the diligent law keepers they were, they still insisted on pushing their traditions onto others. I want to pause here for a moment and just try to contextualize this to our day and time. Um, the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology uh, defines legalism as that which denotes preoccupation with form at the expense of substance. Uh, another way to say that, my paraphrase, is it's being preoccupied with appearances. Uh, preoccupied with the appearance of righteousness. I've got my act together. Why don't you? Or we've got our act together, but not them. Preoccupied with the appearance of righteousness rather than true righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. Basically, it's a gospel plus mentality that we need faith, we do, we need faith, plus something else to be right before God. In this case, the plus was circumcision and the rest of the Mosaic law. I have a Mormon friend. I've shared this uh, with you before. It's worth repeating. He's a, just a good friend, great friend. He and his wife have been our friends for many, many years. Uh, we've done many, many things together with them. We've been in each other's homes many times. We've gone on weekend getaways together with them. We, we really, really like these people. We enjoy spending time with them. We hit it off. And one day he and I were talking about faith. We were talking about our faith and, and, and their faith. And the conversation led us to this topic of grace. And, uh, and I asked, how is a person forgiven and restored to God? How does that happen? How is a person forgiven and restored to God? Is it through our effort or does it come to us as a gift from God? Uh, is it by grace or by works? And he, applied, he replied that it, it is by grace that he believes in grace, and it is by grace, but then he added a qualifying statement that changes the whole equation. He said that salvation is by grace after you've done all you can do. You can see the problem with that statement. After We've done all we can do. I mean, the gospel declares that God's grace comes to us not after we've done all we can do, but because there is nothing we can do to sufficiently cleanse us from within and bridge the gap between us and God. God has bridged this gap by coming to us with grace even when we didn't realize it or while we wanted nothing to do with him. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it's human nature. It's human nature to want to add something to the mix, isn't it? We want to contribute. We want to earn we want to show ourselves worthy or at least give the appearance of it. As strange as it sounds as in, and as, in, as impossible as it is to add anything to our salvation, 
legalism dupes us into thinking. It makes us feel like we're still in control and brings something of merit to the table. Another way legalism occurs is when we take our personal conviction and make it law for others to obey. You ever done that? Ever had someone do that to you? They take a personal conviction and make it a law for you to follow. Or when we take our longstanding traditions and we impose them upon others who don't share our history or background. They don't have those traditions. For example... Some Christians today, I, I, I know some of these, some Christians today believe we should still observe the annual Jewish feasts and festivals, festivals and that not doing so diminishes our level of spirituality. Others say we should uh, observe communion weekly because not doing it weekly is like saying it's not as important to you. Some add parenting to the gospel, uh, suggesting that all Christians must parent in a certain specified way conveniently called God's way. There are those who think that older Christian hymns are inherently or intrinsically better than newer Christian songs. Or that songs are better than hymns. But these are examples of personal convictions not biblical principles. Any toes? If it stepped on any toes yet? Because I will. Just give me time. <laughs> if it doesn't apply to all Christians in all places at all times, then it's a cultural preference, not a biblical principle. Biblical principles are constant and enduring. Personal preferences change from place to place, culture to culture, and person to person. Teaching and upholding sound doctrine is a biblical principle. Every church in any part of the world at any time in church history should teach and uphold sound doctrine. But how to structure the weekly worship service, whether ultra-liturgical or no liturgy at all, that's a matter of preference because the Bible doesn't define a singular order of service that applies to all churches everywhere. Styles of dress and music are examples of preferences. What people where and what kind of music is played and sung has changed dramatically, obviously, dramatically over the past couple thousand years, and it's still changing today, adapting to the specific context. Pastor Lee Toms used to say that those of us in the church, we tend to view the move from outside the faith to inside the faith as a simple line to cross. Like, 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 like here we are outside the faith, we just step over here and we're in the faith. We tend to view it that way. That's what Pastor Toms used to tell me, that we tend to view the move like that, when in fact, uh, that line can appear to those outside the church, that line can appear more like a 10-foot wall. Uh, but, in the mo but in the minds of those outside the church, 
We're standing on one side of the wall telling them what to do and not do, what to like and not like. They're on the other side of the wall coming to the slow realization that they don't fit into our mold and there's no place for them in our church and worse yet, that we seem okay with it. These Christian Pharisees wanted everyone to look like them, behave like them, obey the same laws they obeyed for years, or at least tried to, rather than letting go of their legalism and their legalistic traditions, they wanted the Gentiles to obey Jewish law. I mean, even the statement, even if you just say it out loud, it just sounds absurd, right? And yet sometimes we do the same. We are threatened by the same temptation to rely on the appearance of righteousness rather than the righteousness that comes by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Galatians 2.21 cautions us in this way. It says, do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Verses 6 through 18 emphasize the grace of God in three ways. Peter gives a powerful testimony. Paul and Barnabas likewise testify. And then James connects what those three said to what God said through Amos the prophet years ago. So I just want you to picture the assembly of apostles and elders as they gathered to consider this matter. And after much debate, that's verse 7, after much debate, I mean, there's back and forth and back and forth and maybe fingers are being pointed and veins are popping out of necks. And it's like after much debate, Peter stands up. I think he made a point to stand because the point he was about to make was worth everyone's undivided attention. He began by reminding them of the vision God gave him back in chapter 10 when it was clearly revealed that God's heart went out to Gentile peoples as well as those of Jewish heritage. And remember, Peter was opposed to this. Peter's saying, I I opposed God on this point. I was not for this plan. But God clearly, he just made it very clear that the Holy Spirit, this is what he says in verses 8 and 9 here, that the Holy Spirit was given to them just like he was given to us. They didn't get a lesser version of the Spirit. They got the same Holy Spirit we did. They were invited into the same salvation experience we were. They are as much a part of the family of God as we are. Our Jewish heritage doesn't give us a little special badge to wear on our chests and and boasts in front of the crowd. Yeah, you're saved, but I'm a Jew. I was there long before you. And then he says... When it comes to God's saving purposes, God makes no distinction. How much distinction does God make? No distinction. Between those who had the law and didn't keep it, (laughs) and those who never had the law and didn't keep it. No one is therefore saved through obedience to the law. Instead, God's saving grace is available to any who will trust in Christ. And then he continues with a question. 
Oh, my goodness, this is so good. He says, why test God by placing a burden on others that we haven't been able to bear ourselves? I mean, that's the absurdity of legalism. Legalism expects someone else to carry a burden you can't carry. Think about this. The Jews established 613 different laws they were expected to obey without exception. And so I, I don't know that this happened. I'm just, I'm just picturing Peter. He's looking around the room at this point, and, he, and he's asking others about their level of obedience. He's just moving from person to person. Hey, Thaddeus, how's it going for you? Bartholomew, uh, you towing the line? Hey, you over there, are you making sure to not spit on the Sabbath? Or you, have you been sneaking bacon? (laughs) And what about turkey bacon? Is that okay? But me, if I'm honest... I I, I picture Peter saying, hey, listen, guys, I haven't been doing so well at keeping all these laws. And my hunch is you haven't either. And so why would we, why in the world would we impose them upon those who didn't even grow up in Judaism. And this obviously struck a chord because the whole room just went dead quiet. I mean, it's what we might call a reality check, right? I mean, the whole room just just goes silent. Not only is it hypocritical to expect others to obey rules you don't obey, it's, it's utter foolishness because it's reliance on self-effort rather than God's provision. The whole legalistic picture is total dysfunction because we are saved through the grace of the Lord, as Peter stresses in verse 8, or I'm sorry, verse 11. And then Paul and Barnabas spoke up in support of Peter, testifying that, that God's saving grace was evidenced time and again throughout their recent missions-related interactions among the Gentile people. Then James chimed in to offer further support. Uh, Piggybacking off of Peter's comment, James referred back to the prophet Amos in verses 16 and 17. uh, And it was through Amos where God promised to restore the people of Israel and to reach the Gentile nations also. In other words, way back then, this was 800 years before this event, James is saying, listen, it's been the plan all along that God has always desired to reach people from all nations and cultures, including those who don't share our Jewish convictions or our Jewish traditions. And then he proposed a solution in verse 19, James did, to not trouble the outsider who turns to God or make it hard for them, uh, to make it hard for them to turn to God. I I just love that. Like, like, look, look at that with me. Verse 19. Let's not trouble those who turn to God. Let's not make it harder for them. And I thought about that, and I, and I just, like, 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 what if this became the mindset of our church? Of any church. I'm just using our church because we're together right now. But of any church, what if this became the mindset? What if it was engraved upon the hearts of each one of us at East Parkway Church to not make it any harder for outsiders to turn to God? To not burden them with unnecessary tradition. To be mindful and considerate of them. Not expecting them to conform to our way of doing things. But to trust the Lord 
to trust the Lord to work his sanctifying grace in their lives and ours. I just want to speak openly and honestly and and maybe bluntly a little bit today. And again, um, uh, this 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 applies to any church. I'm not I'm not I'm not taking aim at at East Parkway. I, I want to make sure that that's very very clear. But but let's not. These are just some examples. Let's not make it hard for those on the other side of the political aisle to turn to God. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. Don't make it hard for those on the other side. Let's not make it hard for people who don't wear suits and ties and Sunday dresses or whose lives aren't spit-shined and polished. I mean, have you ever showed up to an event severely underdressed? How did that make you feel? Did you feel like you belonged? Let's not make it hard for those who don't understand our fancy theological terms. Now, those are important terms. And they, the meaning of those terms is hugely important. But, but let's, let's not assume that people are fluent in Christianese like we are. Let's not make it hard for people to find community and meaningful relationship because of cliques in the church. You know, I, I, really, I really enjoyed being with you. Really, really enjoyed your church, but, but man, I just couldn't break in. I just couldn't get in. I, I always felt on the outs. Let's not make it hard for those who don't sing or play music the way it was sung or played generations ago. At times, yes, absolutely yes. But not as a a regular diet. We will always strive for songs and hymns with strong lyrical content because content matters, but understand that those lyrics may be arranged and sung differently than in the past because music is played and sung differently today. And if you send me an email this week, make sure you quote what I'm actually saying and not what you think I'm saying. We could go on. I mean, the issues are endless, aren't they? But as James proposed, let's not burden outsiders with peripheral matters that matter only to us. Let's not let that stuff get in the way of their coming to trust in God and his grace. Church, here's the biblical principle. Never let your preference for tradition overrule your participation in the mission. Never let your preference for tradition overrule your participation in the mission. What matters most, mission or tradition? Traditions change. The mission has never changed. Don't 
Don't trouble people with unnecessary hoops to jump through. They don't need to be circumcised or ordered to keep the Mosaic law, James said. Uh, however, however, he did recommend they not get involved in activities con- uh, connected to idols. I think that was to protect their hearts, right? Protect their hearts. We don't want them thinking that, hey, I can have God and this idol. He said to guard the morality of, uh, of sex and marriage. I think that's to protect their families. I mean, sexual, I know we, and we, it's true. Like, 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 like we have uh, gross amounts of sexual immorality in our culture today. I guarantee you uh, it could not hold a candle to what was going on in these Gentile cities at that time. So, so let's, let's just, we want to protect their hearts, so let's have them not, not be in any way connected to idols. We want to protect their families. We want to protect their marriage. And so let's, uh, let's, let's make sure that, uh, that they're not engaged in this. It's just, it was so common to be sexually immoral that we want to just say, don't do that. And, and, then, and then, this is important, let's, let's, let's just tell them, have them to not serve food that's offensive to Jewish Christians. Because we want to protect their relationships in the church. Because, and, and these things, these examples he gives, these things are, are, are related not to a person's salvation, notice, but to their sanctification. And they preserve church unity. I mean, you can imagine the firestorm if Jews went to a Gentile home for dinner and they served prime rib, cooked rare. And everyone agrees. Everyone agrees with James. Collectively, they wrote a letter to the church in Antioch and they explained these things. And this would be delivered by Paul and Barnabas and two others would join them, Silas and and Judas called Barsabbas. And these four men, all of them, well-respected leaders in the church. They went as ambassadors. They went as peacemakers. They went as bridge builders. Not only did this letter communicate uh, assurance of salvation, it was a statement of unity and oneness between uh, the two churches in Jerusalem and Antioch and between Jewish and Christian, uh, uh, between Jewish and Gentile Christians. It's a statement of, of, of unity and oneness. As if saying, we are not going to let this break our fellowship. We are not going to let this divide our churches. We are going to stand shoulder to shoulder. We're going to stand side by side in, in, in one accord. No wonder it was received so well, which we read in verses 30 through 35. And when the men arrived, they, they gathered the, the, the congregation in Antioch and, and everyone, it, the letter was just read publicly, it seems. It was just read publicly and everyone in the church rejoiced. Everyone was encouraged. The upheaval that, uh, that was brought on by the legalistic few, it subsided. God's grace prevailed once again. And Judas and Silas, they, they were equipped with gifts of prophecy. And so they began to strengthen the people with words from God. And after some time, they returned to Jerusalem. But only, notice this, only after being sent off in peace by those in Antioch. I think that's important because it, it again pictures this idea of inclusiveness and unity. And so the church in Jerusalem sent them uh, uh, Silas and Judas and after Silas and Judas spent time with the church in Antioch that congregation sent them back in peace. And the responses of these two churches teach that, teach, uh, teach that it's not about our differences in background or religious practice. That's, that's not what we should be focusing on. It, it's about our commonality in Christ. 
You see, legalism likes to draw lines of demarcation between us. Uh, between the haves and the have-nots, between the supposedly more or less spiritual, between those who are supposedly doing it right and those who aren't. Legalism just, it always divides. It does. Legalism always divides. But Scripture says that those who are united through faith in Christ should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're closing now. I just want to say in closing that legalism posed a real danger to the church at that time, and we'd be naive to assume it still doesn't. That it, we'd be, what do I want to say? We'd be naive to think that it doesn't pose the same danger to us today. And so let's avoid the gospel plus mentality at all costs. Let's receive righteousness as a gift from God, not something to be earned. Let's not make it any harder for outsiders to come to faith. Let's embrace our commonality in Christ and build bridges Bridges of fellowship between our differences in background and personality and, and tradition. Even our taking of communion this morning, I think our taking of communion demonstrates a wonderful, I'm so glad we're taking communion this morning because it demonstrates this oneness we have in the Lord. And simply put, because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, let's not burden ourselves or others with our legalistic millstones. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the gift of tradition. Oh my goodness, we are so privileged to be able to lean upon those who've walked before us. And yet may we never be like the Pharisees described in, in this passage who, who, who were unwilling to let go of tradition when they needed to. So keep us ever reliant upon you and upon your grace. For your name's sake, amen.